By this time, my family had left the United Methodist Church for a charismatic church. Just before I explain what that means to those who do not know, I think that I have to remark that the decision to change churches was not one that I was involved with or explained to me. There seemed to have been a schism in the last UMC that we attended, but I don't recall specifically what. I think that my parents had correctly grown disaffected with attending a church where nothing ever happened. The services were stuffy and predictable, which is what you really want out of a ritual, to be honest, and, to my ability to remember, had no measurable outreach. As a quick aside, at that church, I had only a couple of close friends. One of them would invite me to stay overnight at his house nearly every weekend of the summer. I remember he had a Super Nintendo, and once he got a copy of Super Metroid and a copy of Nintendo Power that explained to him that you were able to get the best ending of the game by playing through the whole thing without saving. And that was a bit of an end to any fun that I had during those sleepovers. Hopefully this doesn't spoil anything for anyone, but that was when it was revealed that Samus is a woman and likely was the beginning of a horrible arch of masculine weakness that we now see when men take to Reddit with their outrage that sometimes Ghostbusters are girls. However, I'm already deviating from my sidebar. The kid's dad was the choir director of the church. After my friend's obsession with getting the perfect ending of the game, which required that I not play the game whatsoever, and I only watch because there is no way that I'd be able to help with this, I'd wander out into his dark living room, put on the TV, and maybe watch Saturday Night Live if it was on, since it was hit or miss if I was allowed to watch that at home. Starting week two of my sojourn to the television to spare myself the boredom of watching my friend play Super Metroid, his dad would join me on the couch, in the dark living room, to watch whatever I was watching. He'd be wearing only his tidy whities and nothing else. As a, mm, probably fifth or sixth grader, I figured that's just how some families are. I'd seen my dad in his underwear a bunch of times. What's the big deal? Hadn't occurred to me that this is inappropriate behavior for a grown man around a young boy. He'd sit nearby on the couch for a while, usually in silence, and then after a bit would wordlessly leave. Several years later, he was arrested and imprisoned for molesting a couple kids. Turns out he was just psyching himself up, but wasn't quite ready for it with me. Bullet dodged. From time to time, I do wonder how my friend turned out. Could you imagine having your parents sent away for prison for raping some kids? Anyway, after that church, my family moved on to a different church that was Pentecostal or charismatic. I think that there is a distinction, but I don't know what the distinction between the two terms are, and frankly, at this point, I don't care to learn. These are the kind of churches where the pastor shouts their sermon and gets red in their face and stamps. And when the music is playing, people wave flags and jump and shout and fall on the floor and anoint each other with oil. That church had everything except the snake handling. Many years later, I saw Rachel Grady and Heidi Ewing's documentary, Jesus Camp, which is about a church just like this, and someone I watched it with was absolutely shocked that a church like this existed somewhere in America. It struck them as being like a training camp for the Taliban that we keep hearing about on the news following 9-11. And I was shocked that they were shocked. I had attended a church just like it and visited many others just like it. The people there seemed overly friendly and loving people. However, from time to time, 
The Sunday morning service would be indistinguishable from a Republican Party meeting, except for more music and more women. We'd pray for our country, which seemed to be a veiled invitation to plead with God to remove the heathen Bill Clinton from office, on his feet or feet first, since clearly he was the enemy. And let's not get started on Hillary Rodham Clinton. She can't even commit to her husband's name. As an aside, Christians seem to be at this point demonizing the Democratic Party for the pro-choice stance and glorifying the Republican Party for being pro-life. I think in the case of quite a few evangelical Christians, the single-issue voting was likely the case and another example of intellectual sloth. I understand the position of the Christian pro-lifer. I was one for years and even went to the March for Life rallies in Washington, D.C. along with the people who'd tack up big posters of aborted fetuses and the people who seem to believe that America is rife with women who can't wait to get abortions like it's no big deal and that abortion is the primary form of birth control. The intellectual deficit that is practiced by the one-issue voters is that the totality of all other issues are not enough to make up for this one thing. I can easily make the case that if Jesus Christ was an American voter, Carl Sagan, save us, Jesus would be a Democrat. Except for the issue of abortion, in which case I couldn't tell you what Jesus would do, because, let's face it, nobody wants to have an abortion. But abortions happen because that person didn't want to be pregnant in the first place. And is it a greater sin to abort a fetus or to bring an unwanted person into the world? I don't, I don't have an answer to that. But I can tell you that I personally knew many pro-life voters who also seemed to have issues with birth control and only a single couple that adopted a kid and would vote against welfare programs that would help out the families who would be most burdened by an unplanned child. Their savior liked to use the word hypocrite, but if logical gymnastics were an Olympic sport, the gold, silver, and bronze would always go to Christians. The idea that Christians are only voting Republican because of the abortion issue, if ever true, was not by the 2000s, and is not true now. It's a smokescreen. Let's get back to Jerry Falwell, poisoner of American Christianity and his moral majority. Jerry Falwell was a Southern Baptist preacher, and as a reminder, the reason the Southern Baptist Church exists is because it split away from the Baptist Church so that they could support slavery. Falwell founded the megachurch Thomas Road Baptist Church in Liberty University, which somehow is an accredited school. Falwell in the 50s criticized Brown v. the Board of Education that led to the racial integration of schools. He seemed to hate gay people of all stripes, but strangely advocated for their civil rights later in life. You might remember his accusation that Tinky Winky was a gay Teletubby that would lead children down the rainbow path towards homosexuality. He also blamed gay people, among several other groups, for 9-11. Notably, he spoke out against labor unions because, as we all know, Christ favored the rich, paying their workers the bare minimum they could get away with. He hated Islam, which is pretty much par for the course for the right-wing Christian. Also, he was an early advocate for American Christians supporting Jewish-led Israel, which has always been a head-scratcher for me. In the Old Testament, God had a promised land for the Hebrews, and that is Israel. At no point did I read in there that God can't deliver on that promise himself. He has to wait around for a heretical sect of Judaism, later called Christians, to gain enough political power and resources in a faraway land to make good on his promises for a people that reject their Christian tenets. Falwell spent most of his life rather hawkish, which I can't speak for Jesus, 
but advocating for war doesn't strike me as a what-would-Jesus-do kind of thing. Two more things before I wrap up on human scum Jerry Falwell. One is that he also was involved in production and distribution of a, quote, documentary, end quote, called The Christian Chronicles, which spread a series of conspiracy theories as gospel, which may have set the tone for alternative facts, as our current administration likes to use. It's not what's true that's important, as our Bible tells us. It's what we can convince. The second thing is that Jerry Falwell expressed criticism of George W. Bush's faith-based initiative because it might result in non-Christian organizations benefiting from government dollars. And in fact, Mr. Falwell was correct. The Satanic Temple is one of them. I'll pause to catch my breath. If you're wondering why, oh why, does the Stephen Fellow have so much hate for Jerry Falwell, I'll tell you. He has poisoned Christianity in this country by marrying the political right to the evangelical church, shunting any goodwill that a Christian should have for their neighbor regardless of any adjectives you might be able to hang on that person. The parable of the Good Samaritan is an important one in the Christian tradition, and one of the things that, I feel, is rarely emphasized in the telling of the story is that the Samaritan people were hated by the Israelites. The political right can hate the political left and vice versa. That's their prerogative. But Christians have very specific instructions from their namesake to not do that. But Jerry Falwell's work muddied up the waters and this country is filled with Christians that thinks it's okay to hate communists, for one example, despite Christ's never putting an emphasis on national economic models. And while I'm at it, the early church, as recounted in Paul's letters, felt very <clears throat> communal to me. Sidestepping some of the problematic areas of the New Testament, the truly beautiful and brave asks from Jesus, the very things that should make Christianity a driving force behind turning our planet into a Garden of Eden, for all who draw breath were explained away as optional by the efforts championed by Jerry Falwell. His destructive effort on Christianity in the United States and beyond cannot be understated. To return to the point, the idea that Christian single-issue voter on the abortion issue has not been true for a very long time. Before I briefly step away from the intertwining of American right-wing politics and Christianity, I'd like to clarify that not all American churches are like this. The Episcopal Church, for example, is a gay-affirming denomination and appears to understand the nuance between reproductive rights and supporting women with unexpected pregnancies. Being a young teenager and being steeped in the culture, the adulteration of any positive aspect of Christianity with right-wing rhetoric wholly incompatible Jesus' teachings was not apparent to me at the time. In youth groups, there were two big themes that seemed to come up. One was sex. Christianity seems to have had sex at its heart since its inception. Jesus was born to a virgin, and her mom was born to a virgin. This is an important detail, because sex is dirty, right? God created people and created them with a desire to have sex with each other, but actually acting on that desire seems to be a problem. We can't have a savior that was born out of one person going inside of another person and then the miraculous process of conception and gestation that God designed happening to produce as a valid savior, right? As a quick aside, for someone who is listening to this, who is a Christian, the prophecy from the Old Testament that spoke of the coming savior spoke of him being born to a young woman. The word that meant young was intentionally interpreted as virgin and was added later. 
Anyway, I don't think that I need to recount two millennia of the church policing how and when and why people have sex with each other, or its oppression of women, as if Jesus wasn't pretty progressive on gender, or somehow God created women in a sloppy fashion that doesn't put them on equal spiritual ground as men. Youth group sexuality had two primary components, the first being that women were at fault if sex happened. Boys just can't control their natural urges, and it is up to the girls to be upright and chaste. The second is that men are the owner of women. I don't think I heard it in those words, but if we were to boil it down, that's what it'd be. It's the job of the male to defend women against danger, as if women are incapable of violence. It's the job of the young man to respectfully ask the girl's father for his permission to court her or marry her, since she's that guy's property until he marries her off. It's important to not have sex with another guy's wife or girlfriend because, yet again, not your property. These are sexist ideas in both directions. However, if you were to speak against them, you'd be considered a feminist, which was somehow against what God wants. I think that in 2019, it's easy to pick out the things that I just recounted that are bad for women. The property bit for sure, but I'd like to remark on how all of this is bad for males. If the education is given to members of either sex, that it is primarily the responsibility of members of the female sex to prevent the sexual act from happening, that allows the abdications of responsible behavior concerning sexual behavior from members of the male sex. This mindset generates rape culture. The explanation that somehow the male urge for sex is difficult for him to control is degrading and sexist. The overwhelming emphasis on having sex for marriage also gave rise to purity rings and the seemingly incestuously themed purity balls, which are father-daughter dances in which the daughter pledges her virginity to her father until she's married. If this is the first time you're hearing about this, it is still a thing, and I hope you're appropriately horrified. We also got the very popular book by Joshua Harris, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which inspired a nation of evangelical teenagers to adopt a courtship process instead of dating. I didn't read the book, but in my social group, that put me in the minority. Thankfully, Mr. Harris later revisited his ideas, put out in the book, and apologized to people whose lives he harmed with the book. I will include here that even though I just got done lamenting that this particular youth group piled all of the responsibility for sex onto women, which extrapolates into a questionable educational and consent, I will remark that this also constituted the majority of my education on understanding of the whens and whys of sex. The public school education on the topic of sex that I did manage to get over the nine years in public schools explained the mechanical aspects of heterosexual sex and reproduction, but barely touched on any aspect of reproductive responsibility, which the church strongly emphasized that if a fellow gets a lady pregnant, he holds joint responsibility for the totality of that situation, which I still believe to be a quality lesson and a quality way for a man to conduct himself. Although both kinds of education use scare tactics to keep kids from having sex with each other, the secular education did not spend any meaningful time on how to negotiate a relationship and find a partner for yourself. The church frequently dressed it up with the improbable idea that God had chosen a single person out of billions for you, but did discuss how to assess someone else for compatibility. 
I'm not sure if there truly is such a thing as a perfect sex education, but in some ways the church did a better, although more imperfect, job of discussing relationships and sex than the imperfect lessons I took from the public schools. The second big theme in youth group were going to conventions. There are tons of enormous conventions all over the country for young Christians. My church liked to send us to the teen mania acquire the fire conventions. These consisted of a dimly lit arena packed with kids who really wanted to have sex with each other because they are teenagers, but aren't allowed to even think about that, and then have a series of high-energy speakers come out and explain to them that this will be the generation that takes this country back for Jesus. Again, this is the intersection of right-wing politics and evangelical schools of Christianity. Then they put on some Audio Adrenaline, which is a talented Christian band, whose music I still listen to from time to time and not just for nostalgic purposes. However, one of their songs specifically, the first track from their Don't Censor Me album, is Can't Take God Away, which focuses on the removal of prayer from public schools. I did happen to learn around this time that the practice of prayer in public schools is not something that this country had since day one and is now getting snuffed out, but was added during McCarthy-era communist scare in an attempt to add more difference between secular communism and God-fearing America. And God We Trust was also added to money then. So the idea that prayer is being removed from the morning announcements didn't seem like some sort of big loss to me, like it did to my peer group. I remember one acquire the fire in particular, where the organizers wheeled out a big coffin, a real, actual coffin, and explained that we should chuck in all of our secular music CDs and they would bury it. My church group gave me a lot of pressure to chuck in my CD case, but I had the Who's Tommy, which I loved, a couple of Doors albums, and I had just gotten a copy of Nirvana's Nevermind. I really didn't want to give it up and also didn't feel like these songs were anything that God had a problem with. They put their CDs in, and the one kid that still had cassette tapes put his in too, and off that coffin went to wherever it was going. A couple weeks later, back at home, I overheard some youth group kids bemoaning the loss of their CDs, and a couple of weeks later, most of them had been repurchased. The final Acquire the Fire convention that I went to, I hated and I refuse to go to any more. Teen Mania is an organization that also has mission trips. They'll send your kid to Africa or Asia for a week or two for a few thousand bucks. Your kid can stack a few bricks on top of each other, take a couple photos with a poor brown person, and then come home feeling better about themselves. The last convention I went to felt like it was an unending advertisement for their mission trips. I voiced this to my group, and it was met with open hostility as if I didn't want Christians going abroad to share God's word. Well, my problem is, I didn't intend to spend my money for the ticket and time for traveling and the convention to just sit through advertisements for something else, but eh, that fell on deaf ears. I believe that every youth group in America, save for the extremes of churches, have a collection of archetypes that you can find in any. There's always a boy and a girl who are the paragons. Usually they have a dash of holier-than-thou attitude, but not too much. Bonus points if they are PKs, or pastor's kids. There are the kids who are there because a parent decided that they need to be there, really, really need to be there, because of the friends that they've been spending their time with, or, heaven forbid, they dyed their hair black, or painted their nails black, 
or hung strange posters in their room. Or maybe it was a girl who was just too interested in the opposite sex because, again, God made sex, but you weren't allowed to think about it and certainly not do anything about it other than feel ashamed. That would be okay. They were God's grandchildren, which I was at the time. There is a saying that everyone is God's child, but God has no grandchildren. These were kids who were going to church because they were born into a Christian house and therefore were Christians by default. They would vary from sincere participants all the way to grudging attendees. This archetype filled most of the roster of my youth group, and they would grow up to be cultural Christians to fill pews and toss a few bucks into the collection plate and provide church leadership with consternating paradox of why the church is bleeding members when we have all of these pews filled up with lifelong members, as if the existence of the church is somehow a self-validation. The final archetype was the enthusiastic learner. Normally, this would be a kid that someone else in the youth group invited in and it stuck. But let me tell you about my favorite. He was a grant got. But let me tell you about my favorite. He was a God's grandchild who was trying to graduate to Paragon through the path of the enthusiastic learner. At some point in his life, he realized that just because he was born into a home of Christians didn't actually make him a Christian, which if one is going for a proper devotion to the message of Jesus Christ, this is a good path to be on. We had one youth group leader who was a middle-aged woman who seemed to be irritated by legitimate exploration of the canned lessons that she had been tasked with delivering. I'm guessing that she had offered to help out the church and someone said, how about youth group? And she accepted it but was too polite to bail immediately after finding out she didn't like it. It's not called sacrifice for no reason, right? This kid would always have questions for her, and to always ask them with the optimistic gleam in his eye that the answer to his questions would reveal yet another wonderful truth about the love that Jesus had tasked us for spreading to our friends and neighbors and beyond. But she hated it. And I didn't really like her because she wouldn't quit from something that she hated, and could easily quit from. Maybe she hated me too. Whenever that kid would ask questions and she'd try to dodge them or brush them off, I'd chime in, doubling down on his question, refusing to let her move on until it was answered. In my late thirties, I'm not so much of a jerk, but I did enjoy that quite a bit. 